Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino, the, the Big, Big Dinosaur, Dinosaur Podcast, Podcast, where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today we'll be talking about Parosaurus, as well as some dinosaur news. Before we do that, we just want to say thank you to our patrons on Patreon. And we have a special announcement, too. We just released our latest book called Keep Your Dinosaurs Here. Some of our patrons may have seen our post on Patreon about it. It's a creative journal. So it's got a 100 creative journal prompts that we especially created for dinosaur enthusiasts. So to give you more insight into what this book is about, I'll read you our official description. Are you a dinosaur enthusiast? Keep Your Dinosaurs Here is a creative journal designed to grow your creativity and engage your paleontological side. Let your inner child out and rediscover the dinosaurs you loved as a kid. Find inspiration to write, sketch, and reflect while learning fun dinosaur facts. Featuring creative exercises, challenges, prompts, quotes, lists, and more, Keep Your Dinosaurs Here is the perfect gift for you and all the dinosaur enthusiasts in your life. So... If you are interested, it is available as a paperback, since it's a creative journal meant for you to write and draw in. It's only available as physical copies, and you can purchase it on Amazon. We also have links on our website, iknowdino.com. And we had a great time coming up with the prompts and writing and designing this book, and so we hope you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed making it. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting book. I hadn't really seen a creative journal before, but it's basically a series of creative things you can do with your time, like drawing and writing and brainstorming. It's pretty neat. Yeah. Could be a fun activity to do with friends or family, too. At least some of the prompts. <laughs> <laughs> and also, for our patrons who are supporting us at the top level, $20 a month or more, we will be offering you something special. So keep a lookout on our Patreon page. And for those of you who like what we're doing and want to support us, then please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash inodino. So speaking of Patreon, we got a request from Scotty on Patreon to talk about dinosaur pathologies. And we've talked a bit about fossil irregularities before. With the recent Dilophosaurus in episode 68, we talked about a record-breaking number of dinosaur pathologies. <laughs> And in that episode, we also talked a little bit about how paleontologists tend to ignore these irregularities in bones. And it's not because they're being lazy or they don't know what to look for. It's more because they can be so difficult to identify. And even if you do identify an irregularity, it can be even more difficult to decide why it's there. So since every fossil decayed for quite a while before decomposing and then finally becoming a fossil... There are a lot of confounding factors, like distortion from being buried or post-mortal wounds, but there are some that we regularly see, like bones that broke and then regrow in an unusual way and can cause, you know, like a finger that can't bend or something like that. Scotty pointed to an article that showed 15% of T-Rexes had small holes in their jaws, and previously those holes were thought to be from bite wounds or bacterial infection, but a study in 2009 points out that Trichinomus gallinae, which is a protozoan parasite that causes smooth holes in bones at advanced stages, might fit the description better. It's a little bit complicated because apparently 60% of T. rex fossils have <laughs> scars on their heads from potentially other T. rexes 
biting them in the face. Ugh, that's rough. <laughs> yeah. So all the early guesses were that, oh, these are just more scars from getting chewed on because it's kind of on the lower part of the jaw. But now they're saying maybe that's just a vector for those parasites to get in and then later cause this damage to the jaw. What do you think's worse, getting your head bitten by another T-Rex or parasites in a wound? I'd take a bite, I think. Yeah. But I don't know. Depends where the teeth hit. Ooh. It gets you in the eye or something. But the parasite is like eating away at the bone, so that's, that's pretty. I think it's kind of a slow process, though, because they talk about how they must have had it for a while in order to get that. Mm. So it's one of those like long-term versus short-term. Long-term pain. Yeah. Poor T-Rex. Not great. No. So in cases like this, they typically just say that there's bone that's missing or they describe the shape of the missing part of bone. That way they don't have to specifically guess at what pathology might have caused it. After some searching, I found one pathology that I hadn't seen ever before. There are a pair of Pachyrhinosaurus that have a part of their beak that is broken. And the researcher who wrote about it in The New Perspectives on Horned Dinosaur, the Royal Terrell Museum, Ceratopsian Symposium, Life of the Past, it's quite a long title, believes that it was from trying to eat something that was too hard and then eventually broke the beak of these animals, which is pretty incredible to me because Triceratops had quite a strong beak, and I can't imagine what it could have been biting that would have broken part of its beak. I mean, as a human, we bite into things occasionally and break a tooth. It's usually more like injuries, but... I don't know. It's pretty weird. It's almost like it was trying to eat a rock or something. Because if you're just chewing on plants, you wouldn't think that would do it. Maybe it thought a rock was a plant? <laughs> Maybe. We also found a new study showing pathology in an ankylosaur. And this is titled Pathological Pitting in Ankylosaur Osteoderms. It was published in the International Journal of Paleopathology which looks like it only comes out once or twice a year, if that is any indicator of how much research is going into the area. And it was written by Angela Mathias, Laurie McWinney, and Kenneth Carpenter. They describe, quote, large ulcerative pits, end quote, which is a pretty gross way to describe something. <laughs> but there are other descriptions that are much grosser, so that's the one that I went with, that I think it's the most scientifically... It's probably the fun of writing these papers. Oh, man. It was, there's all this talk you don't even want to hear about. But <laughs> specifically, it's on ankylosaur osteoderms. And the authors say that in the past, those pits, quote, have been ascribed without supporting evidence to damage by predator teeth or to disease, end quote. But since damaged osteoderms don't have cracks, as would be expected with typical physical damage, the authors were skeptical of this explanation and tried to look for alternatives. So as a starting point, they started by looking at crocodiles, which have the closest osteoderms to those that are seen on ankylosaurs. And from the comparison, they think the cause that's most likely is what's called ulcerative dermatitis. And apparently that's also known as scale rot. So it's really just like a reptile version of dermatitis. <laughs> Not a great name. No, it's not fun. But then the authors managed to look at about 30 Gastonia specimens, which is a type of ankylosaur. And these were all found in eastern Utah. 
and they came up with three possible causes. They believe that the damage to their osteoderms was either caused by bacteria, fungus, or an infection in the skin near the osteoderms. And according to the abstract, quote, unfortunately, the biopsies that are critical for differentiating diagnosis of diseases in modern reptiles cannot be performed on the ankylosaura osteoderms. Therefore, a single definitive etiology for pits in ankylosaurs cannot be identified, end quote. And we see that kind of thing a lot with pathologies where you just can't narrow it down past a certain point. You might be able to tell, oh, it was an infection, but you're not going to know what kind of infection because they all end up leaving the same impacts on the bones. On to a brighter topic. <laughs> not hard to beat. <laughs> yeah, pathologies are a little rough sometimes. This one's titled, A New Type of Dinosaur Eggs from Early Cretaceous of Gansu Province in China. It was published in Vertebrata Palaisiatica and written by Junfang Si and others. They emphasize the Gansu province in the title because previous discoveries in the area have only been of bones and tracks, although it is a pretty good area for those types of dinosaur discoveries. They named it Polyclonulithus from the Greek of numerous small branches and stone egg, and the specific name is Yangjiaguoensis after the area where it was found. It was discovered in the Yangjiaoguo locality in Lanzhou Minhi Basin in northwestern China. The sediment it was found in is from the Lower Cretaceous, and the paper states it's unique because it has, quote, branched eggshell units lacking a compact layer near the outer surface, interlocking or isolated multi-angular eggshell units as viewed in tangential sections, and irregular pore canals, end quote. It's a lot of very specific egg details, but it turns out that there's a lot of differences in types of eggs, and it boils down to those types of things, the angles between the interlocking pieces and what kind of pores it has and where they're situated and all that kind of stuff. So this one looked different than other ones that they had found. And co-author Zhang Shukang said, quote, the new discovery expands the geological and geographical distribution of the fossil record of dinosaur eggs in China and may reveal the origin of eggshell microstructures of spherulithid eggs, end quote. The egg is incomplete and broken into many pieces, but they inspected the best pieces through a number of methods. First, they sliced very thin pieces to look at under an optical microscope, and then they gold-plated some others to look at under a scanning electron microscope. On average, the egg was about 2 millimeters thick, which is about the same as an ostrich egg, and about 7 times thicker than a chicken egg. Junfang, the lead author of the study, said, quote, It may represent a more basic type of dinosaur egg, which had been extinct in late Cretaceous. The discovery of this new U family possibly indicates that there is an unknown dinosaur egg fauna preserved in the early Cretaceous deposits of China, end quote. So maybe this egg is of a dinosaur we haven't even found yet, which would be cool. But there's always a chance that it's an egg for something we have already seen, because most dinosaurs that are discovered, we don't know what their eggs looked like. Pretty exciting either way. Speaking of eggs, a study of 29 types of dinosaur eggs has revealed that overall dinosaurs buried their eggs in a similar way to modern crocodiles by covering them with dirt and vegetation. 
but there are some small theropods that laid eggs in a more bird-like fashion in open nests. Nesting like birds, and by that I mean not having nests on the ground, away from predators, may have helped them successfully evolve. The team behind the study looked at 30 dinosaur species eggshells and compared them to 120 types of birds and crocodiles. Crocodile eggs tend to be more porous than bird eggs. Most dinosaurs had low porosity eggs, which means they probably buried their eggs like crocodiles, and advanced theropods, smaller ones more closely related to birds, had highly porous eggs, which means they probably brooded on open nests like birds. And this group includes oviraptorids, even though other studies of oviraptorid eggs thought that they were buried. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to see how the different dinosaurs cared after their eggs how some of them buried them with compost to heat them up or other ones buried them by like geothermal activity or sat on them or whatever you got to do to keep those eggs warm. Yeah. <laughs> Next up, there's a new study published in Biology Letters titled Time-Calibrated Models Support Congruency Between Cretaceous Continental Rifting and Titanosaurian Evolutionary History, end quote. I like the Cretaceous Continental Rifting as like an activity. Yeah. <laughs> it was written by Eric Gorsak and Patrick O'Connor. And basically, they were looking at titanosaur evolution in both Africa and South America and comparing it to whether or not Gondwana had split up yet. And just a little reminder, Gondwana was the supercontinent, mostly in the southern hemisphere that included South America, Africa, Antarctica, India, because it's on its own tectonic plate, even though it's been slammed into Asia, and a couple of other little areas around the Middle East and Europe, but Africa and South America and Antarctica are most of the land mass of it. So they compared 45 sauropods and 492 of their individual identifiable characteristics to determine whether or not the South American titanosaurs had started diverging from the African titanosaurs. And after looking into it, they found that the South American ones started kind of looking different and having unique characteristics about 135 million years ago. And they think that their evidence shows that the continents were completely separated about 100 million years ago. The numbers that they came up with agree with previous estimates at when South America and Africa split, so that's promising. But the data, to me at least, is a good example of how messy biology can be. Since we haven't found a lot of individuals of titanosaurs across continents, it's kind of hard to say that one was definitely in both continents. So they end up doing a lot of predicting where we are likely to find them in the future or where they were likely to be in the past based on where specific specimens were found and similarities between species in different areas. And even when you put all those extra fudge factors into it, you don't get anything near a clean break between the species. For example, when you follow one part of the phylogenetic tree that appears to have completely diverged into South America alone, so they have a common ancestor that's in South America and Africa, and then you see one part of the tree where it's species after species that's only been found in South America, then all of a sudden there's a group of European and Asian titanosaurs out of nowhere that don't have any South American specimens, even though it looks pretty clear that they evolved from the South American ones. And a lot of those are after 100 million years ago, which is pretty strange. 
So it's hard to say if they're in the right part of the tree or maybe there was some common relative we don't know about that makes this picture make more sense or maybe there was a land bridge or who knows. But looking at the data now, it's not that convincing. But I guess it's just one more piece of evidence that helps. There's one more study that might help elucidate that a little bit. In 2012, scientists started excavating about seven kilometers or four miles of mostly hadrosaur fossils in Chile, and they found some other things in the area too, but those are the only dinosaurs that I could see. And according to Marcelo Lepe, who is a paleobotanist and chief scientist at the Chilean Antarctic Institute, or INACH, quote, there were thousands of animals whose bones are partially burned. Perhaps they were victims of a paleo wildfire. It's somewhat strange, end quote. I think it's funny that they say it's somewhat strange that there's a huge set of burned extinct animals. <laughs> I've never heard of a burned fossil before or a animal that died in a fire and then got fossilized, so it's pretty weird. One place I saw this article posted, it looked like they were trying to imply that they were burned by the Chicxulub impactor event, because <laughs> that obviously makes a pretty fantastic headline, but there isn't really any evidence to show that. In Scientific American's report, they add that in the dig sites, in addition to dinosaurs, the 25 scientists have found more than 40 plant species, marine reptiles, wood, pollen, and even flowers. So that's pretty cool. And they believe that they have found better evidence of three cold pulses that would have dropped sea level and possibly created land bridges to Antarctica from South America between 73 and 68 million years ago. So maybe if there were three land bridges in that period, it would make a little bit of sense out of that previous issue with titanosaurs popping up in places that don't make a ton of sense. I haven't seen any papers published on these burnt fossils yet, but it'll definitely be interesting to hear what they think happened there, if they have any hypotheses about how the animals got burned. Sounds painful. Maybe more painful than the parasites, I don't know. <laughs> the One of the articles that described it had some really beautiful descriptions of the area, though. So there's an upside. Yeah, the 25 scientists that are there get some nice nature time. Yeah. <laughs> the last journal article for this week is titled The Femoral Ontogeny and Long Bone Histology of the Middle Triassic Dinosauriform Acelosaurus Congway and Implications for Growth of Early Dinosaurs, end quote. It was published in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology, written by C.T. Griffin and Sterling J. Nesbitt, and from the title you can tell that it isn't an actual dinosaur, since they're calling it a dinosauriform, but it's probably a transitional species from other early archosaurs into dinosaurs. So it is close enough to get the dinosaur naming convention, apparently, because they're calling it a Coelosaurus. And this one is named a Coelosaurus Congway. A Coelosaurus was discovered back in 2010, and Nesbitt was the lead author on that paper. A means ancestor or foundation in Swahili, and Kangwei is Swahili for ancient. Since it is named in Swahili, you can probably guess that it was found in Africa, and this guy specifically was found in Tanzania. They estimate that it was from the Middle Triassic, specifically about 241 to 247 million years ago, 
and they estimate that it was about 1 to 3 meters or 3 to 10 feet long. It was bipedal with leaf-shaped teeth and a beak-like lower jaw, and that means it was probably an omnivore or herbivore. In this specific study, they used a set of 27 femora to compare variations between individuals, and the interesting thing is that it appeared that the individuals had a variety of different growth patterns. So they estimated the age of Acelosaurus using things like bone scars, which older individuals tend to have more of, rather than just using specific sizes. And the interesting thing was that aside from the extremely big and small specimens, age was generally a bad predictor of their size. They also believe that gender was a bad predictor of size because there weren't just two groups. Instead, they found a full spectrum of sizes, and it looked like they were just different growth patterns based on their individual genetics, just like with people nowadays. If you took a random selection of people and their size, it probably wouldn't correlate really well to their age other than babies and teenagers. But once you get past a certain point, there's so much variation that it gets all screwed up from the biology. Ultimately, they believe that the genetics of the individual determined their size and whether they were more robust or gracile, meaning whether they were stout or lanky, basically. So pretty interesting. It makes me wonder about a lot of these studies where we talk about things not being fully grown because there are other ones that are bigger. So we'll have to see if other paleontologists bring this kind of science into true dinosaurs or if it just sticks with this dinosauriform group. Next, this site called Inverse shared this great open letter to producers that demands TV producers put dinosaurs back on TV. Megan Logan, who wrote the post, said that, quote, the people want dinosaurs. And she mentions past dinosaurs on TV, including Jim Henson's Dinosaurs, of course, and Terra Nova. Yeah, and there have been quite a few dinosaur shows we've talked about on BBC, but it seems like in the U.S. we've had a pretty big lack of dinosaurs lately. Yeah, and Terra Nova was out in 2011. It got canceled early. That was kind of fun, but there were very few actual dinosaurs. It must have been expensive to do the CGI or something, because sometimes you go a whole episode and it was just people talking about dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, it's a little disappointing. Yeah. What's also disappointing is that special effects are really good now, and shows like Game of Thrones are spending more than $10 million per episode, so seems like it'd be possible to pay for CGI for dinosaurs. Yeah, and in Game of Thrones, those dragons are pretty awesome. That might be what's been giving me my fix, because they're pretty dinosaurish. Yeah, they're not in every episode either, though. That's true. We need more dragons, too. Megan also wrote, Quote, including dinosaurs is expensive and complex, but it's vital that producers and showrunners aren't distracted by sauropods and commit to garbage storytelling. Mm. We need a show that gets to the heart of the issue. Dinosaurs are effing cool and they make the creatures and villains on our shows look like kittens. <laughs> quote. That is true. It is. Although I do like the sauropods, but I understand you need some dinosaurs that are the right size to interact with people. Yeah, that's true. Next, this is about a show about dinosaurs that will be on TV, but not in the U.S. George St. Pierre, a mixed martial artist, is hosting his own TV show called The Boneyard, and it'll air on the History Channel in Canada. The show will be about St. Pierre going to South Dakota, Alabama, Argentina, and other areas to look for dinosaur fossils. So interesting. A couple states in the U.S., yet they won't show it in the U.S. Yeah. And I wonder if the History Channel is the same 
as the American company. Could be. <laughs> so he said, quote, when I train, I love to take time off and fly to the Natural History Museum or an exhibition. So pretty cool that he got to turn this passion into a TV show. That does sound like a dream job. <laughs> I wonder what he means by the Natural History Museum. I think he means the American Museum of Natural History, but he could just mean whatever Natural History Museum is nearby. Yeah, cool. So we have another story about T-Rex Tuesday. According to City Pages, two people from the Twin Cities in Minnesota started making videos just for themselves. They both got a T-Rex costume, and friends and family really liked them. So they started making a new video each week and then posting it on their Facebook page called T-Rex Tuesdays. And videos included T-Rex ice skating, shoveling snow, and more. And I remember watching these and sharing them when they first came out. <laughs> Interesting how there's so many articles about, like, this is the origin of T-Rex Tuesday. I guess if your Facebook page is called T-Rex Tuesday, though, that's pretty compelling. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Speaking of T-Rex Tuesday, I've noticed a lot of hashtags coming up lately. It's pretty cool. We've got hashtag sauropod Sunday. Then, of course, hashtag T-Rex Tuesday. Then there's hashtag Theropod Thursday. And I've seen hashtag Spinosaurus Saturday. So what do they do with those hashtags? You use the hashtag and you post a picture or a story or a video okay. or something. I've mostly seen Taylor McCoy use these for his Google Plus community. Hmm. He was the first one I saw use T-Rex Tuesday, but then I saw a whole bunch of people using T-Rex Tuesday. So I don't know how widespread these hashtags are, but I'm wondering if there's any others. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. At first I was imagining Sauropod Sunday as like people in Sauropod costumes. And <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> That'd be a tricky one to pull off. Yeah. On April 25th, people in Saskatchewan can vote at the Royal Saskatchewan Museum, both voting online or in person, on which fossil they want to represent them. Choices include Moe, a plesiosaur, Scotty, the T-Rex, Kyle Mammoth, a woolly mammoth, there's another plesiosaur without a name, a bronto there, which is a rhino-like mammal, Big Bert, which is a crocodile. <laughs> Big Bert. Yeah. Not... I almost like that one the best is based on the nickname. <laughs> yeah. Bert, not bird. I know. That's almost what makes it better because it's so close to Big Bird, but then it's a crocodile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's a thesilosaur, which is an herbivorous dinosaur. I don't know why some of these fossils have nicknames and others don't. Seems yeah. like it skews in favor of the nicknames. It definitely does. Like, I, I love dinosaurs, but I'm, you I like would Big almost vote for, <laughs> vote for Big Bird just because Big Bird is so funny. <laughs> Scotty's a pretty good name for a T-Rex. Yeah, that's good, too. Also, Moe the plesiosaur is pretty funny. <laughs> oh, yeah. But plesiosaur's not a dinosaur. Yeah, but I like plesiosaurs. Yeah. In Columbus, Ohio... Cozy, a science museum, is requesting $5 million for a project so that it can work with the American Museum of Natural History in New York to bring dinosaurs to Columbus, which would be really cool. Yeah, I'm guessing that means that they would be taking some maybe replicas or something from the American Museum of Natural History. Maybe. It was really unclear in the article. I think the first step is they need money. And, then... and they might not even know yet. Yeah. yeah. Depends how much money they can get. Yeah. <laughs> what they end up doing. And last, thanks to Chris for sharing this one via Facebook. Alphinx on Tumblr posted a funny image that shows the evolution of how we see dinosaurs. So there's three dinosaurs depicted, and we see T-Rex. First is a tripod T-Rex, and then more agile T-Rex. Then there's a lizard-like sauropod with a dragging tail, and it changes to a more horizontal sauropod with a whip-like tail. 
And according to the image, people are cool with these changes, but not so much with the third dinosaur, which shows a velociraptor having feathers. The response to that velociraptor is ruined forever. I say boo to that response. (laughs) It's ruined because it's correct. (laughs) Yeah, I think the feathers are cool, but the response of ruined forever is pretty funny. Yeah, I don't know. People need to accept it. (laughs) it's what it is dinosaurs aren't some imaginary thing that you can decide what they look like they looked how they looked yeah and we don't really know how that is yeah other than feathers yeah in this case (laughs) now for our dinosaur of the day barasaurus which was a request from cole via patreon so thanks cole the name barasaurus means heavy lizard and it lived in the jurassic and the type species is barasaurus lentis and lentis means slow in latin The fossils were found in the Morrison Formation, and they were first found by the postmistress of Pottsville, South Dakota, Ms. E.R. Ellerman. Charles Marsh and John Bell Hatcher, who's from Yale University, excavated the fossils in 1889, and they only found six tail vertebrae back then. Marsh named it Barosaurus lentis. The rest of the specimen wasn't excavated until 1898, so it was left in the ground during that time, and... Marsh's assistant, George Reber Vyland, dug up the bones and found more vertebrae, rib, and limb bones. Rachel Hatch, who owned the land where Barasaurus was found, guarded the land until Marsh's assistant could dig it up. So it's kind of cool that there's several women involved in this discovery. That is cool. It's too bad it's not called, like, post-mistressosaurus. <laughs> In 1912, Earl Douglas, a fossil hunter, excavated four neck vertebrae, which were found near Diplodocus. But then William Jacob Holland said that they were part of a different species. It ended up being Barosaurus. Barosaurus was fully described in 1919 by Richard Swan Lull, and based on the description, the bones Earl Douglas found were considered to be a second partial Barosaurus skeleton. The second specimen is in the rock wall at Dinosaur National Monument, but it wasn't prepared until the 1980s. Cool. Douglas found the most complete Barosaurus in 1923. Fossils from this skeleton were spread across the University of Utah, National Museum of Natural History in D.C., and Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh. Then in 1929, Barnum Brown had all the bones shipped to the American Museum of Natural History in New York, where they still are today. Shows what kind of influence he had. Yeah. You can see a cast of Barosaurus mounted in the New York Museum in a controversial position. It's rearing up to defend its young from an allosaurus. Is that the one that's in the hall? I think that's in like that front, the Teddy Roosevelt Rotunda or something like that. Yes. That, it's pretty cool, the way they have it rearing up. It makes it much taller than it probably would have been in real life. Yeah. David Evans rediscovered a barosaurus skeleton in 2007 in the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto. Earl Douglas had found the skeleton in the early 1900s, and then the museum had traded with the Carnegie Museum for it in 1962, but then it was completely forgotten about until David Evans saw a reference to it in the collection. At first, Barosaurus was classified as Atlantosauridae in that family, but then in 1898 it was classified as a Diplodocid. Marsh named two smaller metatarsals that Violin had found as Barosaurus affinis, but that's now considered a junior synonym of Barosaurus lentis. One species that at one time was known as Barosaurus is Torniera africana. So what happened was in 1907, Ebhard Frost found two sauropods in German East Africa, now Tanzania, and he called them Gigantosaurus. But that genus name already belonged to a sauropod from England, so the Tanzania bones were renamed Tornieria in 1911. 
Then the bones were studied more closely, and Werner Janinch reclassified them as barosaurs. But some paleontologists thought that the bones were too distinct, and in 2006 they were redescribed and called Tornieria. Yeah, we see that a lot, where they go back and forth on, is this its own dinosaur? No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Almost as much as we see rediscoveries of dinosaurs in museums. That's true. So Barosaurus is closely related to Diplodocus. It's about the same length as Diplodocus, but it had a longer neck and a shorter tail. No skull has been found, but it probably had a skull similar to Diplodocus and Apatosaurus, which had long skulls and peg-like teeth. It also had a whiplash tail, like Diplodocus. It was very large, up to 85 feet or 26 meters long, and weighed about 20 tons. Barosaurus had four limbs proportionately longer than other Diplodocids, but shorter than most other types of sauropods. No feet have been found, but it probably had five toes in each foot with a large claw on the forefeet. Other dinosaurs in the Morrison Formation that lived at the same time as Barosaurus included Camptosaurus, Dryosaurus, Stegosaurus, and Othniosaurus. Also predatory dinosaurs, Sauropheganax, Torvosaurus, Ceratosaurus, Marchosaurus, Stoxosaurus, Ornitholestes, and Allosaurus. Other animals that lived at the time were snails, frogs, raven, fish, salamanders, turtles, lizards, and some pterosaurs, as well as some early mammals. And plants included algae, fungi, moss, horsetails, cycads, ginkgos, and conifers. Barosaurus had a long neck that may have helped it eat food without moving too much, or helped it get rid of excess body heat. Its neck was 30 feet long, one of the longest necks of any dinosaur. And the way that Barosaurus' cervical vertebrae is structured means it could easily move its neck horizontally, but not vertically. And that means that it probably ate food in a different way from other diplodocids. It probably swept its neck at ground level for food, so it was not a high browser. Unless it could rear up. Maybe that's why it had to rear up, like, in the controversial pose, so it couldn't move its neck vertically. Or it couldn't rear up, and that's why it's a controversial pose. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. <laughs> In 2009, Taylor, Whittle, and Naish said that sauropods probably held their necks high. Seymour and Lillywhite said that an 80-foot-long barosaurus would require 700 millimeters of mercury blood pressure for blood to reach its head. This means the left ventricle of its heart would have to weigh two tons, and it seems unlikely that such a large heart would have existed. So barosaurus probably had a smaller heart and could not have held its head up that high. That is a huge heart if it weighed two tons. Yes. I'm sure its heart was very large, but yeah, not that maybe large. Maybe only one ton. <laughs> <laughs> in 1978, Robert Bakker said sauropods, quote, could have used contractions of neck musculature as a relay pump to carry the cranial arterial supply, end quote. But there's no evidence of this. There's evidence that some sauropods did hold their heads up high, like Giraffatitan, which held its head up to 26 feet above its heart. So it's good for finding food, but it's unclear how they were able to do this or how big their hearts would have been. There's no soft tissue to study. Yeah, that's always the tricky thing. How do you figure out what the soft tissue is doing when you only have bones? Yes. So the reason we're going over all that is, as Garrett brought up, the way that Barosaurus is mounted at the American Museum of Natural History is controversial because it's rearing up and its neck is high, and it probably was not able to do that. This rearing up pose would have been really difficult on a Barosaurus heart. So probably instead, Barosaurus held its neck parallel to the ground, or it had blood accelerators or pseudo hearts in its neck to help pump blood. There's no evidence of this. These are just theories. I want to see a pseudo heart. If Barosaurus had reared up, it probably would have fallen and broken its neck, too. Oof. Mm -hmm. Bad times. <laughs> yeah. 
There's only two Barasaur skeletons on display in the world, the one in New York, and there's one in the Royal Ontario Museum. You can see an original skin imprint there, too. Cool. The American Museum of Natural History used to also have a model of a juvenile Barasaurus that was in the Miriam and Ira D. Wallach Orientation Center, and it was in there since 1996, but it was removed recently to make way for the new Titanosaur. Yeah, and it was pretty small, especially compared to the Titanosaur. Probably not compared to any living animal on Earth now, but... <laughs> yeah. Peter Sohn, director of The Good Dinosaur, talked about remembering visiting the American Museum of Natural History as a kid and being amazed by the Barosaurus. He said in an NPR article, quote, There was a Barosaurus in the atrium. It was kind of standing on two legs and it blew me away, that thing. It ignites the imagination to think that something that large could have roamed around New York. End quote. You might not realize that the American Museum of Natural History didn't really get any fossils from New York. Could be. <laughs> we'll let him have a pass, though. Yeah. They could have been in New York, maybe. There were dinosaurs in New Jersey. Yeah. There were some in New York, in like upstate New York, too, with the tracks, but I don't know about barosaurs. Yeah. So, the specimen at the Royal Ontario Museum that was found again is the largest mounted dinosaur in Canada. It's 90 feet or 27 and a half meters long. They use the skull of a diplodocus, so since no barosaur skull has been found. The barosaur's bones in the Royal Ontario Museum are mounted in a way that they can be removed for paleontologists to study and replace again without disrupting the rest of the skeleton. More of its bones have been found in storage, and they may be added to the specimen. So it may end up also being the most complete barosaurus known. And the nickname of that barosaurus is Gordo. It's a good one. Yeah. Maybe that can be the fossil of Ontario. Was the sketch? Oh, Ontario, yeah, but they're not voting. That's too bad. You can see Barosaurus also in The Land Before Time, the great long-neck migration. They're background characters who join Littlefoot and his family's herd. And Science Blogs, we'll post a link on our blog, has a post showing old depictions of Barosaurus that were very wrong. Drawings show Barosaurus raising its head really high, having a flexible tongue and veiny neck, <laughs> galloping, and also with a short tail. So some of them are kind of creepy. <laughs> veiny neck, short tail, galloping. Yeah. It's kind of like a horse or something. Well, these are multiple drawings. Yeah. Yeah. But still. So Barosaurus is part of the family Diplodocidae. Diplodocae means double beams. And this family includes Diplodocus, Apatosaurus, Supersaurus, and Brontosaurus, in addition to Barosaurus. Compared to Titanosaurus and Brachiosaurus, Diplodocids were slender and long with short legs, and their back legs were longer than their front legs. Many may have had spines on their backs. They had very long necks, they may not have been able to lift their heads up as high as other sauropods, and they had small heads and peg-like teeth. They probably didn't chew, but rather swallowed gastroliths to digest their food, and they had long whip-like tails that they could snap. Diplodocidae was originally known as Amphicoelidae, which was named by Edward Cope in 1878, but then that became a forgotten name. Charles Marsh also named the family Atlantosauridae back in 1877, but that's also become a forgotten name. Or Nomen obletum. Barosaurus is in the subfamily Diplodocene, which also includes Diplodocus, Torniera, and Dinherosaurus. This subfamily lived in the late Jurassic and early Cretaceous, and another subfamily are the Apatosaurines. Diplodocines were more slender and had longer necks and tails. And our fun fact of the day is about dinosaur eggs, which is something I go on little tangents about from time to time because I love thinking about little baby dinosaurs and eggs. Specifically, this one's about classification of fossilized eggs, and that whole field is called Verirovata, 
and they are classified into oo families, oo genera, and oo species. Oo. It's really fun to say. And they can generally be called oo taxa. All of those words start with oo because it's the ancient Greek prefix for egg. Just think of the word ovum and then oovum, I guess, and then just oo. <laughs> I don't know how linguistics work. So if you're ever going to talk about ooliths or fossilized eggs or virovata, now you know how to refer to them properly. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. And again, if you'd like to support us, then please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Until next time. Thank you for listening to I Know Dino. If you have any questions or comments about dinosaurs, we'd like to hear from you at plesiosaur at iknowdino.com. And for more information on dinosaurs, go to iknowdino.com or follow us on Google, Facebook, Tumblr, or Twitter at iknowdino.